Okay, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is John Kelly. John is the founder and CEO of Puck. It's a new-ish media venture uh, that I think has done incredibly well. So you just celebrated your second anniversary. John, congratulations. How, how, how do you think it's going so far? Thanks, Bradley. I'm happy to be here. Y- you know, um, when you're as close to it in the weeds as I am, obviously you have to appreciate success when it comes. And I think that by by many measures, uh, the the company has you know fulfilled our expectations. But but obviously, when you're as committed to it as we are, um, you're you're not just trying to succeed. You're you're trying to figure out how you can you know shatter your wildest expectations and and create something much bigger than you are. So um, on the one hand, we're, you know, we're thrilled, we're thrilled with the work that, um, that our team, my partners have been able to create. We're, we're thrilled with the impact we've been able to have on the culture, but we, we really do feel like we're, we're just getting started. I know that's a trope that people say all the time, but, uh, but we're living through a moment here in media where new brands are replacing old ones, new habits are forming, new business models are emerging, and uh, we feel like we're at the very beginning of a, of a really long journey. So you came on when you guys were just launching about two years ago, and you outlined your business model, which I think is a, a little unique and uh, probably g- given the media climate necessary to do something different to be successful in this environment that we're in. Um, how has the how does the model work? Just for those who may not remember that episode, and how have things changed, if if at all, over the last two years? Sure, and we feel that the the model is essential. Uh, brands brands are incredibly important. And they are enduring, but they can be ephemeral. Business models are are etched in stone. And you know, I, I have a slightly different background, Bradley. I, I worked in you know traditional media companies for the first, I guess, fifteen years of my life, and then I, I made a hard left turn uh, in, into the higher calling of private equity. I worked at TPG for a couple of years. I think and they call that a hard right turn, but yeah. <laughs> the um, I became uh, it, it was an eye opening experience for me, and it was a real. Um, you know, it, it was it was brain surgery, in mid you know mid career, and I became absolutely beholden with the idea that uh, the business model of journalism didn't make sense anymore for a lot of reasons. Um, the, the the simplest of which I could go on for days, but I, I won't I won't bore anyone. Was that the creators weren't incentivized? You know, it, it, you look no further than some of our biggest media entities, where there was a pretty simple paradigm that took place. You come up at a place like the New York Times, you do your best work there for 10 or so years, and then you'd probably max out economically and you'd have one foot in the building and one foot out giving paid speeches and writing books and, and um, you know, setting up a shingle for yourself. And that didn't work for anybody. It wasn't great for the creators, certainly wasn't great for the business itself. To You know, it, it was leaked value. So I was obsessed with finding a business model that was able to contain the value in the company and incentivize great journalists the same way that that elite professionals in every other walk of life are incentivized, the same way that that a rainmaking lawyer or a, um, you know, two and 20 hedge fund executive or or a a deal carrying private equity executive are incentivized. And so our model is a long windup, but our model is um, different for three reasons. Our journalists are also shareholders in the company. Their their commitment is um, memorialized on the cap table. They're also given meaningful performance bonuses based on the subscribers they drive or the events that they host or IP that they generate so that Puck can produce it and, and create it with them. And then obviously um, we, we want to pay them uh, you know, what they deserve. So we believe we're incentivizing them for the short term, for the medium term, 
in the long term. And we're not done yet iterating on the model. We have to obviously continue um, as as the landscape changes. But what we've seen very clearly is if you incentivize incredibly talented people to do their best work and to be more than journalists, to be domain experts in their field, then you have the best possible incentives at work and, and everyone's interests are aligned. And what has that meant so far in terms of your ability to both recruit and retain? And how do you think that's different from a traditional media outlet? Well, I think that um, we there's a certain uh, caliber and type of journalist that makes sense for Puck. And in a lot of ways, it's um, it's a it's a journalist that that has graduated from from other kinds of media companies and and um, is a, a personal brand into themselves, but also wants the the, the trappings and support and um, you know, I, I guess, kind of uh, creative backstopping of of, uh, of of a larger cultural brand or institutional brand as well, and that's important to us. If you look at some of you know uh, Puck's elite talent, like Matt Bellany or, or Dylan Byers, these guys are one of one in their field. You know, they're they're truly singular talents, and we know that you can't put the genie back in the bottle. We live in a world where it's Matt and Dylan, and they work at Puck, and we don't want to make Puck bigger than them or subsume them into Puck. We want to be able to, to recognize that that's just how it works now. So I don't think um, I, we're entering a new era now where there, there are going to be a lot of winners and we're not going to be the only one. But we do believe that for a certain kind of talent, uh, Puck is absolutely the right answer. And it's a two way marketplace, right? We want to we want to make sure that we are solving a solution on the talent side. But we also want to make sure that obviously we're solving um, a, a problem, sorry, on um uh, on the consumer side, and, and 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 that was you know really where this idea came from. That I felt as someone who'd been in this world for a long time as a consumer of this world, I wasn't getting the real story. You know, there there used to be brands that served you in this way twenty years ago. They, they don't exist anymore, and we believe that that you know that's our our most important mission, and um, that's the one that you know that we wake up every day um, intending to to figure out. Yeah, in, in in a way, you could almost say that you guys are the next evolution of Substack, right? Which is you have reporters who kind of become brands unto themselves and social media and, and sort of their ability to be on TV a lot obviously made that possible. So some of them said, you know what, I don't need to work for newspaper X or media outlet X. I can just have my own subscribers and make more money. And then I think Puck is the, look, sure, you can do that, but you know what? You can be as big of a brand as you would be on your own here, but even bigger where you're part of a business that as it grows, you can actually not just sort of have more fees than you would get in salary from the Times or whatever it is, but equity in a company that may have some real exit value at some point. So is that an accurate assessment? You know, I, I would I bristle a little bit at a, at a couple of the fire points there. I, I think that Substack is, is undeniably a platform and, and we, we are a, a company and a brand and we actually believe that brands matter. I think, you know, Substack is definitely the answer for some people, but I think it's also a... Um, I think it's also a gateway drug for other creators who who want to leave institutions and try things on their own. We believe that the power comes when elite talent get together to create something. And so, you know, while there is Matt and Dylan and Julia Yoffe and Tara Palmieri, there's Puck too. And, and, and Puck has a sort of worldview and its own personality and its own character. And I actually think that, you know, if you look forward at the future of media, um, and, and we're, you know, we're, we're, we're pointing out sort of, um, maybe uh, edge differences here. Um, uh, I think Substack is a is a software solution for a lot of journalists and creators. I think Puck represents what I believe is um, uh, the next chapter uh, for a, a large cohort of media 
which is brands that are more impactful and uh, but smaller and and more precise and um, uh, and affinity driven, meaning that people will pay for them. You know, you asked before what, what makes our model different. We're a subscription first business with advertising built on top of it. And there is nothing novel about this. This is how magazines reigned for a century. You would send your leaflet to Boone, Iowa, you'd fill your name out, you'd send your check in, and then the publisher would be able to sell advertising based on that monthly retention. And there was, you know, there was monthly uh, recurring revenue that came, and then there was the, the ad they sold on top of it. That went away for a while, uh, for about, you know, 10 to, to 20 years as, as Google crawled the world and, and Facebook uh, and, and Twitter came onto the scene and, and the industry sort of lost its nerve. And all of a sudden, a Michael Lewis article was worth the same amount, if not less than a 27-year-old blogger article. The, the, the creators are yanking that world back to something that makes a lot more sense. And, uh, and thank God, because uh, that, that was a mess. Yeah. So I am a subscriber, a reader, a fan, and I would say as someone who consumes, you know, a decent amount of your content, I see it as a way for really smart journalists to give me inside gossip and another perspective on sort of issues affecting the elites. Um, and it's helpful as I sort of incorporate that into how I think about whatever's happening on Wall Street or in Washington or Silicon Valley or Hollywood or whatever it is. Is that the goal? Is that what you want it to be? Well, I think that, you know, zooming out just one level, we, we recognize that journalists, that modern elite journalists have many skills. Journalism is but one of them. The, the other is that they're domain experts and, and they're in the information flow in the same way that the subjects are. And the traditional vessels of, of news publishing are insufficient for them to communicate all that, right? So what we want Puck to do is give you the inside story. And we want it to be, we want it to be credible to people like you, Bradley, who are, you know, or who are living in, in that world and, you know, and, and swimming in it every single day. So it, it is, um, it is, it's one part journalism. It's, it's one part sort of analysis. And I think we recognize that, um, you know, the coin of the realm in the, in the social media era that we've sort of just passed was just micro scoops, you know, little, little, um, uh, small details, you know, Donald Trump went to the bathroom today, he fired so-and-so, or, you know, people are snitching on each other. And that's not actually, I think, conferring real value. Um, it's the, it's the, um, the in the weeds, uh, C-suite water cooler conversation that, that is impossible to replicate on X or Twitter. That's impossible for chat GPT to get its head around. That's, that's the moat now. And, that, and that's where we're, we're trying to, um, uh, we're trying to be. Yeah. I, th I think you very much are. Um, people's media consumption habits. Um, what have you learned about it and how is it different if at all from what you would have predicted going in? I, uh, that's, that's a great question. Actually, there's a, um, a, a very meaningful answer here. So I assume based on my experience in the past that like 90% of our audience would be on mobile and it's not, there's a, a large, um, you know, it's, it's about, closer to 50% on desktop than I thought. And I think part of that is uh, because we're such a professional tool for people. Um, you know, I think Puck Games in some, on some level will be the last mile of news. You know, you, you, we're not going to compete with the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or Bloomberg, um, but we are going to be additive for people who read all those things to want to know, you know, the one layer um, beyond that is as they peel the onion. So that behavior is, um, uh, it was interesting to me, I guess not surprising in retrospect, but it, but it was it was when I first, um, 
discovered it. And I think the other observation, um, and this is really just a, a point when it comes down to business models, really successful brands now with, with recurring revenue models need to, I think, be sort of B2B on the inside and B2C on the outside. You need to offer something that is um, professionally insightful for people who are always um, uh, who are always learning, always working, uh, all, all, always trying to, to garner edge. And I say that because the last generation of brands were consumer plays, and they were built on a scale model, which is, you know, in, in, the, in the current tech environment, impossible to, to win. It's, imp- it's impossible to gain margin when your content is, is living on Facebook or Twitter or, or Instagram or, or LinkedIn, when that's the primary source of discovery. So the next, the next generation of brands, um, uh, and this is where the desktop point comes in, ha- have to be, they have to offer something worth paying for, and that's usually a professional service. Um, and the changes that, that Elon's making at Twitter or X or whatever we're supposed to call it now, um, there have at least been complaints that it's hard for stories to go viral because he doesn't want his audience going off platform. Has that impacted you guys at all? And, and generally speaking, you know, do you feel like Twitter is a useful sort of ally and facilitator of business or more of a competitor and hindrance? So we do a lot of business with X. Um, part of our strategy is based on performance paid marketing, where we're constantly advertising on social platforms to try and bring in new leads to convert to subscribers at Puck. We spend a meaningful amount of money every month on Twitter slash X. And I, I think that we've, we've found the performance there to be a, a, you know, somewhat erratic from time to time, but, um, but it's still clear to us based on what we see uh, for our, you know, average um, CACs that it's going to, it's, it's still a place where news consumers are, are living and, and operating. I, I, I see the same algorithm challenges that, that I'm sure you see, which is that it seems like my feed isn't as fresh. I'm getting old content. It, it, my interests are, are you know, not as psychographically aligned. Maybe that's because I'm using it a little bit less than before. Um, but I don't, I think that a lot of the Sturman drawing about uh, Twitter being totally over is is actually overblown. You know, people obviously dislike Musk for for a ton of reasons, many of which are are personal and political. But there's still uh, a lot of economic opportunity on on the platform. So, so you guys cover five, four major subject areas, and you're adding a, a fifth. So Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley. DC and then now fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how would you describe the kind of underlying thesis on each? And I'll, I'll 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 start you off by sort of giving you how I would say your thesis around tech is, which is effectively we're living in the new age of robber barons. These are the wealthiest, in many ways, most influential people in the world, um, and they both behave badly in many ways and are subject to the same petty human frailties as everyone else, and also are achieving sometimes incredible things that are changing the world completely. And it's that sort of dichotomy of the two that makes them really interesting. I don't know if you would agree with that or not as sort of Teddy's kind of underlying ethos, but A, do you agree? And then B, how would you say what those would be for the other sectors? I appreciate that. And actually this live feedback is really valuable. Um, It's good to see how how your brand is reflected in the world. I think at at a broad level, we view it all as one world, you know, as you sort of scale to the tops of these various worlds that we're in, it, it is one small cocoon where a, a lot of players overlap. And, and your point is exactly on the money that the, the, the generation that's made an extraordinary fortune 
in Silicon Valley in the last generation are often spending that money um, in adjacent fields, whether it's supporting candidates like Blake Masters or J.D. Vance or, you know, um, uh, people like Ron Conway uh, advising the White House or, you know, uh, Tim Draper spending a billion dollars at Stanford to create an institution uh, based on his own interest. You know, it's uh, it's all interconnected. I think broadly we think of these as the, the, the fascinating um, uh, sort of sexier thinking people's industries. Um, and we're also committed to um, to expanding the remit over time. I think fashion, um, which Lauren Sherman covers perfectly for Puck, surprised a lot of people externally when, when we announced her hire. But to us, it always made sense. You know, fashion's a $2 trillion industry. It's adjacent to Hollywood in a lot of ways and, and, and almost a, a subset of media in others. And this is where the we perceive Puck world to be. So I, I think that you'll see us... Um, sort of nibbling around the edges in that territory as well and um, and expanding, uh, uh, you know, the 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 puck cinematic universe for, for lack of a <laughs> yeah. Careful, the MCU is not doing so good. Um, <laughs> it, I know you're not the domain expert in any of the individual sectors that you guys cover, but obviously you're reading all of the content and, and I think are pretty well informed. So I'm going to d- dive into a couple of specifics yeah. and just get your take on it. Um, Rider Strike is over. Um, everything seems broken. The the cable bundling approach is broken. The streaming approach is broken. Um, what comes next? It's funny. I think of, I've been thinking of the writer strike and the producer strike and maybe the the, the the gaming strike, which seems like it's the one that's coming next. It is almost akin to uh, a, a spousal argument where you know the the husband and wife each have shitty days at work and they come home and they sort of scream at each other and, and take it out on one another. At the end of the day, there are changes in that industry that are so much larger than anyone can control. People point a lot to the Bob Iger interview in, in Sun Valley and, and you know, uh, lambast him for it. But the reality is the, the writers are angry, um, understandably, with how the industry's changed, how the deal structures have changed, how there are way few orders than there have been in the past, and how the economics that underpin it all have changed. And the streamers, which are or the, the larger media companies, which basically made half of their money from the the, the lingering um, impact of, of linear television, are seeing that just go away overnight. And we have the the most hegemonic, you know, figures in charge of these companies, Aslov, Iger, Roberts, and they don't have the answers, right? I mean, they just don't, and um, and they're and they're iterating in real time. So it is a sort of spectacular moment where you know the the the, the, the children, so to speak, and, and to continue this metaphor, realize that, that mom and dad don't have all the answers and, and that they're just they're just frustrated. So where does this go? I think inevitably it's going to lead to a lot of spins of smaller companies, uh, um, uh, probably, you know, debt laden spins. Uh, I, I'm this is not investment advice. I certainly don't pretend to have any inside information, but I assume that um, ABC and ESPN get spun together with a lot of the Disney debt into a public company. I'm guessing Jimmy Bittar runs. I think that's a paradigm for what's going to happen a lot. I think that if Paramount Global can't sell BET, it's going to end up doing something very similar. Um, this is actually not that different from the world I grew up in, which was the magazine industry, which was the, the sort of second large pillar of media to, to be um, seized with with terrifying disruption. And you'd see events like you know Time Warner you know, or Time Inc., the media assets, um, the, the magazine empire being spun off and then 
going from deal to deal to deal, and now it's part of Diller's empire. So I think it's going to be a lot of deal making, uh, a fair amount of it defensive, and um, it's going to play out over the next five years. And it's going to be um, it's going to be, it's going to be painful. I hate that. That's a, a sort of euphemism that investors use, um, which I I always shy from. But I think that there's going to be a lot of a lot of unpleasant deal making, and a lot of um, a lot of debt will sit on top of these smaller deals as the bigger companies try and uh, and spruce up their balance sheets. And they all have a ton of of debt. I mean, Disney's at like forty five, I think. WD is at like forty seven. Um, it's not a pretty picture. And this is all bad news for viewers because we were in this age where they were spending far more than they should have on content, creating a lot more content than they needed, and now all of a sudden it comes crashing down. Or is there some sort of silver lining? I think I think where it's bad news for the consumer is that there'll be there'll be a preponderance of choice. It'll be confusing. Um, it's already getting confusing to figure out how you watch, you know, the Knicks or, or the Yankees because their their yeah. the rights are across so many different. Um, you know, is it, a, is it a Friday Apple game? Is it a you have to get YouTube TV? I think there's a lot. You know, there's like 500 shows that are greenlit every year. I don't know, four are, are really good, Bradley. I, I feel like it, it's not a great scenario for <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Like, I don't know if there are more Floribama shores in one world or the other world. I think there's a lot of leakage in um, in the entertainment media industry. And um, one area to be optimistic is that there'll be a, a lot of the value leakage will will go away but it's going to get confusing for consumers very very quickly um because these smaller companies are going to have to work on licensing deals with the bigger streamers and so the walled gardens that we were really primed to expect for a long time are going to go away as um these smaller entities get gobbled up get spit out in different formats and have to find ways to to um to display their content on the i'm guessing three streamers i'd have to imagine if we're looking out in a couple years it's going to be um, the Disney Plus entity, I think they're they're obviously going to buy Hulu. Um, uh, I think ESPN Plus will they'll find a way to, to work on a partnership, even if that's spun separately. Uh, I have lots of conviction that uh, Max and um, that, that WBD and um, NBCU are going to combine. I just don't see any other way around that. Um, I think it's going to live under comcast which will probably own 51 percent it'll be another spectacular economic outcome for zaslav and nick malone and the new house is probably uh I, I think it's a financial play for them at this point so they'll they'll be thrilled with that and then and then netflix you know a paramount global gets uh probably picked off uh, for for pieces one way or another um let's look to politics so tonight is the second republican presidential nomination debate and the second one without donald trump mm. At what point, if at all, do you feel like, what the fuck are we doing? Like, we're devoting ink and time and resources to all of these people who are all down by 50 points in the primary. Um, is there a point where you just decide this is stupid, or do you just sort of go along with it the whole way? You know, it's funny. I've actually been inspired a lot by your political commentary, Bradley. Uh, you, you said a long time ago that when you got out of politics, you sort of walked into a room and, and were worried that people would look at you as a um, not the brightest uh, gemstone. In, in the room. And I, I think that people in politics don't always understand that. But this is a moment where you do sort of scratch your head. I've been thinking this for a long time. It's over. I mean, yes, it's possible that there's a um, that there's a stroke of lightning sure. event that changes things. Trump gets really sick. Um, but there are very few known unknowns here. Um, the, the DeSantis uh, campaign super PAC situation seems like a future Harvard uh, Business Review. Uh, <laughs> I mean, just How not to do something? Totally. I mean, yeah. this, this like t- 
tight-knit circle of yokels from Tallahassee, the whole Casey factor, whatever Jeff Rowe is doing back there with his $100 million, I, I don't know if they're not listening to him or he's not listening to them, but, but it, it just, it's a... It's a I, I would say that you guys are, were actually, I don't know if it's a problem, but you guys were part of the cause, I would argue, on the sort of DeSantis sort of artificial rise before reality set in, which is he was sort of seen as the most viable alternative to Trump. Therefore, he got a lot of ink from you guys. Elites paid attention to it. A lot of people, like a lot of the tech bros in the Valley, who don't really understand politics but think that they're political geniuses because they've made a lot of money doing something else, um, all got behind him. You had that absurd launch of his campaign on on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and in a lot of ways, you know, and I don't think that's a bad thing, but you guys arguably contributed to the sort of mania that made this guy seem like a real candidate when he never actually was. Fair enough. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Um, I think that where we probably enter the picture is uh, with a, a sort of fascination that occasionally borders on fetish with Jeff Rowe, who I think is really an incredibly smart operative um, yeah. working in that world now. And, and I, I felt that, um, that, that Jeff Rowe was sort of the pageant mom of, um, of the GOP in 2024 and, and the candidate or the Nick Boletari or whatever you want to call it. The, 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 and the candidate that he picked was going to have a uh, serious edge. It turns out, though, that, that Jeff and Axiom only got involved at the super PAC level, which is very different than, um, and, and that should have been, the uh, uh, the initial tell should have been that DeSantis is is absolutely, utterly charmless, right? Like, I, I don't think that he's just cooked in this cycle. I think he's, he's I think he's cooked in, in national politics. I don't, I don't think he can come back from this. This is like, um, you know, this is sort of like a, a sitcom where, where, where the, the laugh track doesn't work and no one claps. Um, <laughs> But we uh, we we probably misjudged the the power that Jeff could have here, and I'm sure that he's shaking his head, just thinking, "Oh, I should have waited out for Glenn Youngkin." Uh, yeah, well, 2028. Um, SBF, give me the line prediction: Will he be convicted? And if that's sort of an obvious yes, um, Elizabeth Holmes got 11 years and change. What do you think he gets? Oh boy, I, I think he. Um, this is so fascinating, and and this is right in front of us now. It, I'm not a lawyer, um, uh, and I'm a, a very bad prognosticator, but it sure seems like the deck is stacked against this guy. I mean, when you think about who among his inner circle is is working with the government, it's it's incredible. I mean, it, it, Carolyn Ellison and Gary Wang and, and Ryan Salem, who was the sort of um, uh, cool guy in in in, um, in the SBF inner circle and in, in his one of his political shamans. I think SBF in his own mind seems to believe that he has a non-zero probability of getting off. And, and they're blaming the lawyers, right? I think that there's an issue with the advice from Sullivan Cromwell. There's an issue of the advice that, that they got from Fenwick. I think this is going to be a really uh, it, a, a nearly impossible hurdle to jump in, and um, uh, he'll be in jail for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I think he, it's funny. A friend of mine is his, his comms guy on this, and like he definitely believes that. And, you know, in a weird way, I'm almost, we were talking the other day, I'm hopefully not speaking out of school, but like, assuming that he does get a long jail sentence, if he just kind of remains delusional for the entirety of his existence, that may actually be a easier way to survive jail um, than owning up to everything that happened. Where he gets sent to jail, I think it's, it's going to be, become a, 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 a subject of, um, of negotiation at some point. Well, you're going to just, I remember when I was, uh, has to testify against Rod Blagojevich, um, and he got, he didn't do anything that was bordering violent in any way, shape or form, but because he got a 14 year sentence, that meant he had to go to a medium security jail, which is a lot tougher and worse than a, a minimum security jail. 
if SBF gets 20 plus years, he may just have to, I wouldn't hit the super max, but he may go to a pretty rough place simply because of the length of the sentence. One of the crazy things about um, uh, SBF and, and the sort of psychology of the family is just how unrepentant they are. And I know this is like a kind of borders on a, on a legal slash uh, PR strategy, but um, even if he's trying to hide behind the defense of bad, um, bad legal advice and, and being in, incompetent, he absolutely screwed over so many people, um, it, it, you know, and that's if, if you even believe his, his defense. Um, and neither he nor the parents seem in any way to be empathetic to that. And it's, um, uh, that's a, a, a major sort of EQ uh, point against them because there's, um, Elizabeth Holmes, as you remember, was, was a very, very different defendant. I think that she, uh, she was nuts in her own way. But um, she 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 recognized uh, how colossally she had um, she fucked up, and you just don't you just don't see that with Sam, and it's it's bewildering. I think it's going to hurt him. Yeah. So William Cohen's a great writer. I don't think anybody with a logical mind would dispute that. But it feels to me like Wall Street as an industry and topic has just become less interesting. Um, it just feels. You know, like it's these sort of bureaucratic people with shitty values who have a sort of, you know, broad impact in one way, but but a limited impact culturally on the world, especially compared to politics, Hollywood and, and tech. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, how does it, as, as, so, as it given that it's one of your major pillars, is it getting the same level of interest and clicks from your readers as the other sectors or, or is that suspicion right? Without getting into the details, Bill performs really, really well. Sure, and I think there are there are a couple of um, of reasons. One, he's got unique credibility. Before he was a great writer, he was a M and A banker for twenty years. He worked at JP Morgan and Lazard, uh, GE Capital. You know, um, a, a zillion years ago. So he's got unique credibility, especially at the, at the C suite level. And I, and I think that um, that that hybrid background um, makes him. Uh, you know, t- truly formidable. Uh, there just are, are there's, there's really no one uh, like him out there. Um, you know, if you think about the, the elite financial journalists, um, people like Sorkin, who's, who's a great guy, they, they don't have that kind of background. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So that's so that's um, that's a differentiator. I, I I politely disagree. I think that actually, look, a certain amount of Wall Street is obviously boring and quiet. You know, you sort of have the the, the fantasy of. Um, of Michael Douglas's Wall Street, where people are running around with chits and orange jackets, trying to make huge deals, you know, at, at futures exchanges, and, and it's not like that, right? Nope. A, a lot of it is done in in glass encased conference rooms or in front of Bloomberg's, with you know, um, uh, Harvard Business School and Wharton uh, graduates spending all nighters trying to figure out if you know what what the the future price of grain is going to be, or if you buy all the linoleum floors, you know, in, in a certain area, can you, you know, th- therefore take away the, the live events businesses from other, I mean, it, it's, you know, um, there's a precision, but I, I appreciate it and really love it. I mean, I think my, my, um, uh, the period of my life where I touched up against that made me appreciate what a different view of the world is. So we don't want to represent, um, the boring part of Wall Street, but what we do hope to represent, which I fully believe in is the idea part of Wall Street, which is that w- within all these institutions, the, particularly the biggest private equity firms, and, and, and that is actually where I think a lot of the most interesting action takes place. There are always ideas percolating about how to take a private, a public company private, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're working on an intricate deal structure to uh, to combine three companies into one. 
uh, figuring out how to take a company like GE and divide it into three. And so that I think is actually underappreciated. And, and, and that's what, what Bill does really well for us. But that's different than um, that's really different than financial news, so to speak. Right. And then business of sports seems to me is like a potential growth area only because it's business, but it has that same sex appeal of tech and Hollywood and politics. Do, do you see that as something your readers would, would want to dig into more? A hundred percent. That's actually something that we're, that we're very openly contemplating right now. I, I think we, uh, to me, what's going to happen with ESPN, as I alluded to before, that's the, the next CNN uh, of our time. You know, when you have an incredible moment where something that means so much to the culture is on really, um, uh, you know, I don't want to say rocky economic footing, but something that had been a total behemoth is now much more unstable. And it's going to have to make a lot of uh, seriously tough calls. And uh, and sports is media. Sports is, is, a, is a subset of media. And it's a small world um, where that is filled with deals. And um, uh, it's absolutely fascinating. And, and that's, um, you know, part of the, one of the secrets of Puck, I think, is that people, uh, our, our community, our readership, um, they, let me put it this way, um, they didn't want to be the players, um, uh, you know, reading the, the the sports pages. They wanted to be the general managers, and so I think that this is um, uh, this is how we view the world, and um, th- that is absolutely a, um, totally. a necessity for us. My uh, my nephew, um, my sister was telling me once, you know, crazy crazy sports fan. He's got like he's eleven. He's got fourteen fantasy football teams and all of that. And uh, his dad's a congressman, so he's met lots of, you know, wherever he goes to a game, he gets to go on the field, whatever it is. And my sister said the thing that he was the most excited about by far was when he met Adam Silver at a bar mitzvah. And that's funny. Because that, I was like, yeah, because that he could see himself being, right? He knows, he may say he's going to play professional football, but like he knows that a short Jewish kid from White Cough, New Jersey is not actually going to play professional football. <laughs> but could he be the commissioner? Sure, you know. Um, right. <laughs> let's end with your last pillar, which is fashion. I know nothing about fashion, so I can't even ask you an intelligent question. So let's flip it around, which is tell the listeners, what's the most interesting thing happening in fashion right now? So the most interesting thing at a high level is that fashion follows the same paradigm as we're seeing in media and actually on some level in politics, too, and and certainly in Hollywood. It's a multi-trillion dollar industry that is essentially controlled by three companies now. The, the most famous is, is LVMH, which is the company that the Arnauds have um, voting control over. Bernard Arnauds, the wealthiest person in the world. People don't necessarily realize that this corporate raider turned fashion eminence, um, you know, built a high margin empire on on acquiring companies, putting them together and um, being able to have, you know, to, to, to sell leather goods and, and hard luxury. Uh, and they're constantly on the lookout to buy new brands. And... Then there's Caring, which is um, run by the Pinot family. Obviously, uh, Pinot just bought 53% of TPG and uh, excuse me, of, um, of CAA from TPG. Um, TPG is an investor in puck disclosure. Uh, and then Richemont, which is the third. And that's not all that d- dissimilar from like, you know, WME and CAA and UTA in Hollywood or WBD and um, Netflix and Disney, um, you know, in, in the, the top of, of entertainment media. And so, uh, for, you know, with, within Puck, that's just like a, a constantly fascinating ar- arrangement where you have these hegemons who are competing with one another. They're all 
they have they have different balance sheets um, and, and different ambitions on some level. But there's always deal flow. There's always rumors about the future deal flow. And every designer that comes up in the world, whether they're coming up in America or launching a brand in Europe, there's no question that the end state they're imagining is an acquisition by one of those companies. There are very, very few independent fashion companies now. Tory Burch has one that's privately held. Alex Mill, which is the Drexler one, you know, the, the Gap. Like, they're few and far between. So that's a world that's always going to be fascinating for Puck, you know, where, where you have um, these sort of superhero-like forces and then um, you have a, a crop of people trying to, to go from, you know, being um, the outsiders to being the incumbents. Perfect. John, uh, first, congrats on two really successful years. Uh, how do the listeners who are not subscribers subscribe to Puck? Go to puck.news and uh, hit that subscribe button, and you'll see that uh, for $100 a year, this is uh, the, the best value you could possibly have. I would definitely endorse that. John, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Bradley. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PET Network, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PET Network.